0: you would remain standing, our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Now, I think there's a problem with my transmitter, so I'm going to steal this one so people at home can hear. So, here we go. Our scripture passage is Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are your children and we are in need today. So would you care for us? Would you feed our souls? Would you give us a desire for Christ this morning? Would you help us to see Jesus? Help us to see his grace and help us to see our need. Would you send your spirit to accomplish all that you command? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about the value of life. One of the things we saw was that because human beings are made in the image of God, every human being who walks this earth is of real, objective, true value. We talked about why that is. We talked about the fact that it is because we are all on this earth as representatives of the creator and because we bear his His imprint. And that also means that as we saw last week, that we do what we can not only to not take life, but we do what we can to preserve life. And Jesus, though, deepens the command. Jesus doesn't cancel out that command. He goes a step further. Jesus says, you've heard that you shall not murder, but I say to you, you can't even hate your brother. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the heart. He is not, at this point, talking about murder. He's not talking about violence. Jesus is talking about what comes before that. He's talking about what becomes before that. I'm going to take 30 seconds on a rabbit trail here. Before we go any further, because there is this modern misunderstanding of what hate is. There's a modern misunderstanding of the word. It gets frequently misused. Uh, It is a clever rhetorical device when it is employed. But I think usually the way uh, hatred is normally used is to say something like this. If you have a disagreement on moral judgment, then that is hate. Now, it's not always the way it's used. Sometimes it's used in the very common sense way. But sometimes, just to simply say, I believe that something is wrong, you are considered to be hating the thing that you believe is wrong. So I just wanted to say this, though. If it, ta- if it is hate to make a moral judgment, then you can't even say that hate is wrong. right? Because if moral judgment equals hate, then Jesus was the most hateful man who ever lived. Because all he does for three chapters here so far is render moral judgment. And he sets up standards for Christians. And then he spends the rest of Matthew making moral judgments of the culture around him as well. And so if a moral judgment is equivalent to hatred, then Jesus is the most hateful man who ever lived. And I think that that is a misunderstanding of what hatred is. So I feel safe in saying... That the Bible rejects this idea that having a moral belief or having a moral judgment is the same thing as as hatred. It's not hateful to tell the truth. It's not hateful to believe that sin is destructive and to warn people when you can. Um, If you come into all of this thinking that is what Jesus is doing, you're going to be really baffled by everything else Jesus does in Matthew's gospel. So instead... Jesus speaks about hatred. He, he uses another word here. He uses the word anger. Um, we're going to talk in a moment about this. But I think the idea that Jesus is getting at is that despising another person deeply to the point that we want something bad to happen to them. That's hatred. That's the kind of anger that he's talking about. And so, so that the, to the point that if this person were to be murdered, it would be like we got what we wanted. In other words, hatred or anger here is like heart murder. It's murder in the heart. And, and yeah, I'm using the words anger and I'm using the word hatred here in, interchangeably because I think I think for the purposes of what Jesus is saying, they mean the same thing. Um, ultimately, whatever word you end up using, Jesus is forbidding us from having bad feelings, bad thoughts, malices, grudges, animosity, All the things that that say within our own heart, I hate this person. He's telling us not to hate. Notice what he's not telling us. He's not telling us that we can't have differences or disagreements with people. Jesus isn't saying that. Uh, Being a person in this world means being around people that we disagree with. That is actually a part of life. That's the challenge of life, isn't it? Uh, It's what to do with those disagreements and what we do in the midst of those differences that matters to Jesus. And so it's not about uniformity of views between people. It's not even about uniformity between Christians. It's it's not about hiding differences. It's not about hiding disagreements either. Uh, Those differences, those disagreements inevitably come out when we live honestly around other people. The problem comes when you disagree with someone on something And then you take it personally, and then you say, why doesn't he just move to another country? Or why doesn't he just shut up, or I'll make him him afraid, or I'll make him shut up? See, remember, Jesus is not about dealing with symptoms. If he was about dealing with symptoms, he would just say, make sure you don't murder each other. But he doesn't do that. Jesus goes deeper. Jesus labors in his teaching to get at the sin that is under the sin. See, the problem ultimately is not that people are murdering each other. Not really. And in the United States, we just saw a couple of weeks ago, the FBI released crime data that says that in 2020, the crime, uh, violent crimes in the United States skyrocketed in ways we haven't even seen before. And yet, I have the temerity to say the problem is not actually that we're murdering each other. The problem is there's something going on in the hearts of American people that they would come to the place that they would do that to each other. We don't know how to think well about disagreements in general. We're certainly getting worse at it. We're getting worse at having people in our life who don't see things the same way as us. We want to be surrounded by people who think like us. And oftentimes even if we share the same worldview with others, sometimes people are still just hard to get along with. So how do we, how do, we do that? I think Jesus speaks, he speaks briefly on the subject here, but what he says is dense, what he, what he says is, is packed with a lot to help us. And so let's just do two things. Let's look at the two sides of the equation that Jesus sets forth for us here. First, let's look at the issue of hatred. And then second, let's look at what Jesus wants for us, which is harmony. So Jesus wants for his people to move from hatred to harmony. That's what he wants for us. And so let's look at both points this morning. Um, First, you see Jesus takes the command not to murder from verse 21. We saw it last week. I won't won't, uh, retread that ground. But then what he does is he amplifies it to this idea of anger and hatred. See, this is bigger than just murder. Listen to verse 22 again. He says, "...but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment." Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, remember, whenever I talk to you all about sin, about things that are forbidden, uh, as your pastor, but also, uh, also as a fellow sinner, I speak what the text says, I hope. But I also, I also speak for my own experience. You know, I have... I have some sort of experience with any sin that I talk about. Uh, Whenever you hear from your pastor talking about sin from the pulpit, he knows what it's like to do the things that he's talking about in the text. And yet I want you to think about this as we're hearing this from Jesus. Jesus doesn't have that experience. Jesus never knew firsthand what it was like to do the sins that he was talking about. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to hate another person, not experientially anyway. Um, He knew what it was to be tempted to be angry. He knew what it was to be tempted by these sins, but he never knew what it was like to experience the act of actually doing them. And of course, that means Jesus never hated anyone. And so when he describes hatred in these verses, think of it. Jesus is talking about something that is foreign to his own soul. Um, He he has no personal experience of hating another person, and yet he sees the act of hatred, and he sees hatred in people's hearts all around him. And so Jesus is, is in a sense, narrating and describing things that he knows of, but that he doesn't know in his own heart. So notice something about this idea of anger and hatred, though. Jesus seems to see hatred and anger as a two-way street where the parties all bear some responsibility. I'm getting a little, a little ahead of us. We're going to touch on this later. But, but first here in verse 22, he describes a situation where we have been angry and insulting. In other words, we, we were angry with somebody. We've hated somebody. But then in the remaining verses that we're about to get to, Jesus tells us there's another party here. There's this other person who is now also angry because of our anger. This other person that we need to come to terms with. That we need to be reconciled with. What happened? We became angry. We became insulting. But because of our anger. Because of our insults. Our brother or sister now has cause to be angry and insulting toward us. And without coming to terms. As Jesus says. Without reconciliation. We're going to be caught in this feedback loop of anger. Right? Everyone, everyone always thinks they have a good reason to be angry. I have never in my life met an angry person who thought they were in the wrong. Just think of all the times you've ever been angry. Have you been mad and said, I'm wrong about this. I'm just mad about no thing at all. (laughs) It's like, no, usually, usually anger arises from this strong sense of justice. And from the sense that what is right has not happened. And it makes us furious. And because the person that, that we're angry with or the person who's angry with the other person is also a sinner, there is always plenty of fodder to feed the anger, right? There, there is always something. And once I decide that this person is a problem, all I have to do is look. All I have to do is glance and I can just start finding stuff. Oh, the, there are never-ending troves of causes that we can find in this other person that can drive us completely bonkers there is plenty of fuel for that fire once we've made the decision to engage the will and say i'm i'm angry and i know why i'm angry and i can think of even more reasons why i should be angry so here's the danger here's it especially as christians this is a this is an explicitly christian Temptation here, I think. Um, we can yield to being angry people, and we can use religion as our excuse. Why we we have this special category of anger that we call righteous anger. Um, and I believe in righteous anger because the Bible teaches that there's a real thing. Uh, Jesus was righteous, and there were things that made Jesus angry. And yet, it's also possible to be angry and not sin. That's what Paul says: be angry, and do not sin. And so we know, that, we know that anger itself is not a sin. It's not the anger that's, that's the sin. And yet you have this category of righteous anger for sinners like you and me that can be, it can be like a dangerous permission slip that we oftentimes will give ourselves that, that permit us, at least in our own minds, to be angry. And I want to suggest to you we should be very careful how often we deploy the righteous anger permission slip for ourselves. We should be very judicious in how often we pull that out and say, I have righteous anger in this instance. Um, You are not Jesus, and, and I'm not Jesus. And so we should be, we should be paranoid. We should be skeptical. Every time that we think to ourselves, I have righteous anger, you should seriously ask yourself, do you really have righteous anger? Or are you just mad? Um, I guarantee you, I have been angry many times in my life. Very few. In fact, maybe none are the occasion when I would have been willing to admit that I was not experiencing righteous anger. I always thought it was righteous anger. Except for maybe extreme situations of obvious personal failure. I always think it's righteous anger. I just always think it must be. And so what I'm saying is we should be very humble when it comes to our ability to assess when we are and when we are experiencing righteous anger. And we should be self-conscious of that, right? I am the kind of person to immediately want to label my anger as righteous anger. Jesus doesn't give any qualifications for our anger here. He doesn't say, everyone who's angry with his brother, unless he deserved it, will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother, unless he deserved it, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, unless he really is a fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Like, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. I'm not saying that righteous anger or calling out foolishness is impossible, right? When we hear about Boko Haram, kidnapping children from a Christian school in in Africa, it is very hard to know how a sanctified person doesn't become angry at that sort of wickedness, right? And it seems unreasonable to expect you to be serene and solemn in a moment where you find something like that out. Um, What I am saying is that Jesus seems to be setting the pace for us here, right? Right? While there are exceptions to this principle, here's what you need to hear. Your anger is not healthy. Stop justifying it. Here's my point I want to get back to. I mentioned this already. There are two parties, at least when it comes to the hatred Jesus is talking about. You know, the old cliche goes, it takes two to tango. Um, Each party thinks the other party made them do this and made them feel this way. Why? Because they did something. They said something. They took something. They damaged something. Uh, The possibilities are endless. We're sinners. So just fill in the blank. Whatever thing might make another person angry. But have you you ever seen an angry person say something like this? Why are you making me do this? You ever been told that by somebody who is in the midst of a flash of anger? Why are you pushing me? Why are you pushing me? Why are you making me angry? See, the assumption coming from this person is that, is that the other person is controlling me. The other person is, has got their hands on the strings of my life. They're making me act this way. They think that this other person has the power to do something and to turn up your anger meter. That they have this kind of power over you. And Jesus says, you are responsible for your own anger. You are responsible for the insults and the names that cross your lips. You own it. It's yours. They didn't put that in you. You didn't have to respond the way that you did. No one can make you do that. No one can make hatred or anger pour out of you. In fact, no one has to because it is there. Another person can't make us hate them. Another person has the power to sin. They certainly have the power to sin. But it is we who are responsible for what comes out. It's our response to that wrong action or that wrong word that sends us into the spiral of anger and insults and toxic behavior and all the other symptoms that Jesus is calling out. And frighteningly, Jesus says, we're responsible for what we do and say, not for what they did and not for what they said. We answer for what we did. He says so in Matthew twelve thirty six. Listen to these terrifying words. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I mean just follow yourself around all day and record the sort of things that you say and spend your your vocal energy on and you will be terrified by Matthew 12:36 there's a seriousness to that what's to be done well the spiral has to be broken right the, the world does love to talk about love and the world loves to talk about how bad hate is and yet the world has zero, Resources to combat hatred at all. What worldly reason do I have for ever overlooking a wrong that someone does to me? Just in terms of worldly, in terms of the worldly reasoning, let's leave God, let's leave Christ, let's leave the teachings of the New Testament out of it. What worldly wise reason can you think that you should forgive someone else or overlook someone else? Why should I stop hating another person? Hatred and anger have some utility. They are useful, if you think about it. Because once someone hurts us, what do we do? We learn that this person is untrustworthy. We learn that this person is driven by bad motives. And so our negative assessment becomes useful. We decide that if we judge the person, then we are protected against being fooled by them. We're protected from being hurt by them. Why should we give up the strategic advantage of judging another person or expecting bad from them and treating them the way that we expect them to treat us? There's strategic value in doing that. Why in the world would somebody give that up? Why would someone give up the strategic advantage that comes from hatred and anger? On one level, hate makes sense, right? It keeps us on our toes. It keeps us suspicious. No one's going to hurt me. I'm going to catch this problem before it even happens, right? So it makes worldly sense. But it also rots us from the inside out spiritually. That's not a worldly reason to give it up, though. I was unsuccessful in finding out who originally said this, but I love it. It's a good quote. If someone knows the original, I want to hear it. But listen to this. Holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's Sort of a consequential argument. It's not exactly a good argument necessarily. It doesn't get it why we should give up anger, though, according to Jesus. Why should we give up on anger? Jesus says, if you do not, you will be liable to the hell of fire. There's a reason. It's not the only reason, but it's a reason. In other words, our hatred of another person made in the image of God is damnable. I and mean, he talked about the image of God last week. Why, or we talked about the image of God last week. Why is murder so evil? Because this person is made in the creator's image. He carries the mark of the creator. She is one of God's creatures. This person, however fallen and flawed they are, is on some level, an emissary of God on this earth, walking the sod like us, with the image of God Almighty pressed upon them. It's a person of, of immense value. And we don't see it, right? We see a dirty person, or we see somebody who's not like us. But, but they are there in God's image. Here's another reason. Here's another reason to give up anger. Biblically speaking, we live upon Grace. Um, That is our food for Christians. That is the air we breathe. In other words, we should give hatred, we should give anger up because we also deserve righteous judgments against us. If you started stacking up the list of things that we need to answer for, it becomes incredible just how we're on the same level with this other person that we're so angry with. Um, We also deserve hellfire. Our our sins are different maybe, but we deserve whatever we think they deserve too. Um, We are people who rely on grace, and if we live for condemnation, then we condemn ourselves. Mm -hmm. Every bad word we speak of them, it's like a testimony of what we deserve. It's like us saying, I know what I deserve. I want them to get what they deserve. Here's another reason. Hatred makes us unlike Jesus. Um, If there was anyone who ever walked the earth, who deserved to be able to walk around shoulders hunched, face red with anger filled with rage it was jesus if there is anyone who deserved to do that it was jesus if there was a virtue in living in constant 24 7 anger all the time you have to think jesus would have been angry all the time he would have been like the hulk okay and yet somehow our anger and hate makes us unlike Jesus, as unlike Jesus as we, as we could possibly imagine. Why is that? Because when we look at a sinner, we see a problem. Right? We look at a sinner, we see an inconvenience. We look at somebody who has made our life difficult because of something they thought or said or did. And so without any self-consciousness, we see someone who's in the way of what we want. Or, or if we're feeling especially righteous, we might see someone who's broken God's law and really ought to be held accountable by somebody. Why not us, right? Yet Jesus looks at the rich young ruler who thinks he kept the law, and Jesus looks at this man and it says he loved him. If I had been Jesus, I would have been so angry the second that he said, I've kept all these laws since I was a youth, I would have grabbed the table and flipped it over. I would have thrown a hissy fit to end all hissy fits. And then I might have talked to him. Um, I I would have just popped up. Where do you have the nerve? And And instead of getting at the guy's heart, I would have just laid into him. I mean, I hope I wouldn't, but it's in me. Jesus is surrounded by opportunities for anger at every turn. And instead he loves Almost always, our anger makes us unlike Jesus. Isn't that another reason to abandon abandon anger? Yes. It makes us unlike Jesus. If we love Jesus, we want to be like Jesus. And then we see how he's confronted with wickedness and stupidity. And he just he's just got a heart full of love for these people. It's amazing. Yes. Um, and I can't get into his head to know what it's like to be Jesus, that he looks out and isn't angry with them, but he isn't. Or if he is angry, his love is greater. But the point here is this. Jesus addresses not just murder, but the anger that is underneath of murder. The second point this morning is this. Second notion Jesus is pressing us toward. It's this idea of harmony. You see this in verses 23 through 26. I want to read it again because they're so important. Because they're so central to what Jesus wants for us. Listen to this again. So in the last four verses of our passage, Jesus tells us what to do if we find ourselves in such a situation where there is anger, there's hatred, there's animosity between us and another person. Specifically, it actually says, if you know your brother has something against you. He doesn't say if you have something against your brother. So he's he's not actually saying, hey, it's time to sort of be like George Costanza's dad and uh, sitting around the, uh, the Festivus tree and saying, I got a lot of problems with you people. That is not actually what he's telling us to do. Instead, he's saying, I know you have a problem with me. And you address it. In other words, it's an opportunity to confess. So he says, what do we do if we're angry with our brother? What do we do if we've insulted our brother and they know it? What do we do if there has been there is a beef between us and somebody else? And Jesus mentions a few things. I'm not sure I'd call this a series of steps, but they're... There are at least imperatives. And there are two distinct imperatives Jesus gives I want to focus on. First, Jesus says this. He says, here's this imperative. He says, leave your gift. Leave your gift. He says, if you're in the midst of some religious observance and you realize you have a problem with someone else or someone else has a problem with you, stop what you're doing. Why does he say that? I think he's saying something really substantive here. Jesus is saying... That reconciliation has a priority even over religious observance and religious ceremonies. See, we have this human tendency to sort of use religion as our reason why we can't do something or why we shouldn't do something, right? And I I think Jesus is saying that anger and hatred is actually a hindrance to worship, right? It's, It's hard to love and worship God when you're sort of grinding your teeth. Um, Jesus' solution is not for us to worship through it. You know? He doesn't say, look, just, just grind your teeth, get through it, and then when it's all over with, you know, then maybe cope with your anger somehow. Right? He says, he says, no, you can't use religion as an excuse not to be reconciled to somebody else. We commonly apply this command to the Lord's Supper as well, right? Occasionally. Uh, I will give this reminder when we're at the Lord's table that if we have something against a brother or sister, or a brother or sister has something against us, that we should abstain. And, and I think that's that's one application of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, not that the Lord's uh, not that the Lord's uh, supper um, is is a, is a gift. The Lord's supper is not us offering a gift, um, and also not that the Lord's supper is an altar. This table over here is it's not an altar; it's just a table. But the principle is. Our relationships impact our worship, and our worship should impact our relationships. And Jesus is talking about how these things are actually more intermingled than we might think. Sometimes we come in here, we think, well, this is about me and God. Well, actually, we're here corporately together, because it's not just about me and God. It's about all of us and God. And so the Lord's Supper is this this thing. It's a symbol of the bonds that we share in common through Christ... How can we act as though the bonds are intact when they're actually frayed and they're stretched and they're damaged? And the simple answer is we can't. And so Jesus says, if you recognize something is wrong, he says, leave your gift. It's the first imperative that he gives. The second imperative he gives is this. He says, be reconciled. And then another way of putting it, he says, come to terms. This is the second thing he says that we should do. So Jesus says, um, he comes to us with a couple of terms in verse 24. He says, first be reconciled to your brother, then offer your gifts. So you have this word reconciled. The second way he puts it in verse 25, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Come to terms. And I think he uses both of these, these phrases synonymously. I think he's using them the same way. He's using them as though they are the same thing. You cannot be reconciled unless you come to terms, and you can't come to terms unless you're you're reconciled. Uh, In other words, you're supposed to repair what's broken. Um, The old word for this was reparations. Uh, That that word's sort of taken on sort of a loaded connotation in the 21st century. Um, But it really just means to repair the relationship. Reparations means to repair, right? So So, anyone who's ever had their relationship hurt by another person because they defrauded them, or because they stole, or because there was slander, or because someone insulted you or hurt your good name, um, anybody in that sort of situation has a responsibility to come to terms with the person they hurt. We have a duty to be reconciled, not in spite of truth or in spite of what is right. What does that mean? Coming to terms with someone involves three steps. The first step is confession. You ever have a relationship problem with someone, and you do have an issue between you, but instead of confessing, the other person comes to you, and they've never said they were sorry, they've never said they did anything wrong, but they might say something like, you know God says you're supposed to forgive me. I mean, you probably had that happen. (laughs) Somebody comes to you. They don't want to say they were wrong. They don't want to say they did anything wrong. They don't want to confess, but they want that forgiveness. Um, that's a problem. Because reconciliation can't happen without that confession. That confession is so crucial. Because it's us sort of putting ourselves out there and saying, I did wrong. I, I was wrong. I, I, I treated you wrong. I, I sinned. Um, something here happened, and it was my fault. And so forgiveness can't happen, um, and it doesn't happen. And often the problem is they've never asked for forgiveness. They've never admitted to anything wrong. Do you do this? Are you too proud to say, I was wrong, but you're frustrated that you think this person's never going to forgive you? You think, why won't they ever forgive me? I can just tell that person's still mad at me. And yet you know in the back of your mind and in your heart that you really don't ever want to have to say those words, I was wrong. Um, this is one of the crucial truths of a relationship. It's often the hardest thing, right? Nobody wants to be wrong. Everybody wants to be right. Nobody wants to admit error. Nobody wants to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. And yet often the person who needs to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, wants the forgiveness without the sorry. They want the other person to be the big person. They want the other person to take all the weight on in the situation and forgive without needing to confess. Sometimes we'll confess without confessing. If I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. Right? If I hurt your feelings. Um, If you are too thin-skinned to handle my advanced truth-telling abilities, then I'm very sorry that you are so deficient as a person. Right? Uh, Boy, that's that's the easiest confession to give in the whole world. Because it's really you that's got the issue. Instead, we should confess, I spoke unkindly. I was uncharitable. I assumed the worst about you. I hurt you. I talked about you to somebody else. I, I took something that was yours. I sinned. I'm sorry. No no qualifications. Nothing about the person that you did it to. You just say, I was wrong. That is confession. John Murray, I was reading his biography. I recommended it in Sunday school. this last semester. Uh, he was the... the Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary. I just have loads of respect for John Murray. I love John Murray. And um, believe it or not, he was single all his life until his later years. When he was in his 70s, he had two children with his wife, Valerie. And while he was, I think he was in his late 60s, he wrote to his future wife, Valerie. And he talked about going to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's General Assembly and he, tell, he relates a story to his future wife. Listen to what he said. He said, at our last general assembly, I made a remark or series of remarks from the floor that was unfair to a fellow commissioner. I made public apology to the assembly and private apology to the person injured. He readily forgave me as a Christian gentleman, but oh, what pain that error gave me. It still makes me smart when I think of it. Think of what he did. (laughs) He, He trash talked another presbyter on the floor of the General Assembly. And he acknowledged it. He admitted it. And then he went to the person and he said, I was wrong. And he talks about how painful it is to think of it. How hard it is to address our sin. How hard is it for you to admit when you're wrong? I find in my own life that I have almost always sinned somehow in every relationship. And so when I can tell something is wrong, I have plenty, plenty to apologize for. Um, and taking the first step oftentimes breaks the ice, it gives the other person the opportunity to confess as well. If you can't think of anything to confess in your relationship with another person where things seem to have gone bad, just open your eyes. Just open your eyes. Get a mirror. Um, Ask God to show you what is my role that I played in this situation where things seem to have gone so far. Ask God to expose it. There are psalms where where David says, Lord, search me and try me. Show me my heart. What's he doing? He's saying, I know something's wrong in here, God, and I need you to root it out and hold it up in front of me because I've got to confess this thing. I know there's something wrong and I know that it's my fault. The psalmist is saying, God, search my heart. That's what we have to do. Especially if we could see this relationship has gone bad. Somehow, ask God to search your heart. What role have I played in bringing us to this point? By the way, if you have something against another person, but there's nothing they could confess. I was asked about this at one point. I was preparing this and I was talking to someone and they said, but what if that other person didn't do anything to me and I'm angry with them anyway? I thought, is that a real thing? And the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, actually it is. Have you ever heard of somebody having a punchable face? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you know what a punchable face is, then you know what this is. You know what, what we're talking about here, right? If you don't like, that's a sin of bitterness. They've not done anything to you. They have no sin. They could come to you and confess. We've got to let that go. We've got to confess that to God. That's a sin of, of bitterness. That's something that they haven't even done wrong. And yet we're angry, we're hateful, hateful, we're bitter at them. Um, For us to come to terms or be restored, there must be an offense. If there's not an offense, if we have no reason to be angry with someone, we have got to ask God to release us of the way we feel about those things. So the first step is confession. The second step is forgiveness. If you are the offended party then coming to terms and being reconciled means that you no longer hold on to the hurt. It means you no longer hold on to the anger and you no longer hold on to the bitterness that might come along with that hurt. Um, we could say say a lot here, and, I, and sometimes this is easier said than done, especially when the offense is deeply severe. Um, but I'm going to save some of that for later in Matthew because Jesus is going to talk more about the imperative to forgive. Jesus isn't done talking about The obligation to forgive others. But let me say this much. Jesus is as pointed as can be two other times in the gospel of Matthew. In the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus says, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So if you won't let them free, then you don't get free. And then in chapter 18, after Jesus tells a story of an unforgiving man being thrown into prison, Jesus says, so also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. That's a formality. Te absolvo. Go in peace. (sighs) You know? Jesus says, no, forgive from the heart. He says, forgiveness comes from the heart. Not just saying begrudgingly those painful words, I forgive you. But real forgiveness that never raises the offense again. You ever been forgiven by somebody? And then they bring it up again? (laughs) Um, That's hard. That's hard. That means forgiveness hasn't actually happened. So here's what happens. Real forgiveness never raises the offense again. Jesus has no interest in seeing you hold on to your grudges. Forgive, Jesus says. Forgive freely. Forgive readily. That's the second thing that needs to happen in reconciliation. The third step is showing the fruits of forgiveness. This might involve some kind of reparation. You see uh, Zacchaeus do that, right? Zacchaeus uh, is restored. And what does he do? He gives back what he stole from others. And he gives it back with interest. But he also restores what he can. Right? He gives what he's able to um, We can't always repay what we've taken. There are prisoners who are in jail who have taken a life. And one of the things we often lament is, and we talked about the death penalty last week, whether the person is put to death or whether the person uh, spends the rest of their life in prison, does that restore the thing that was taken? No. I mean, there's nothing magical about this. All All that happens is that the person receives what was coming to them, and yet it doesn't fix the situation. And so there are some things that we can't repair. There are some things that we break or that we take or that we harm that we can never actually put back to 100% again. And so Zacchaeus does what he's able to. And sometimes uh, repairing that reparations, sometimes it isn't possible. But when it is, the biblical model is repair what we can. So if you stole from someone, if it's in your power, you should restore what was taken when I was nine years old I stole a watch I saw a bunch of boys in the high school and they were playing in the gymnasium and they were all playing basketball and I walked in after school and I saw this super cool watch like you guys don't know how cool this watch was but it was like it had had a, a calculator on it and I was like I was like I could cheat in school I was not saved I was like, I could cheat in school. This is going to be amazing. And so I just picked it up, and I walked out of the gymnasium with it, and I started walking home. And an older boy started following me, and he said, Hey, Adam, I saw you take that watch. Hey, Adam. And I just thought, well, if I walk faster than him, it'll be fine. So I just. But it was a very small town, and so this boy followed me to my, my house, and he said, uh, "I saw, I saw your son take that watch. And my mom only had to look down and go, I know you're, that you don't own on a watch. Adam, you don't even care what time it is, you know? <laughs> and so I had to very sheepishly take the watch off of my wrist and hand it back, and it was, a, it was a hard thing for me to do, enough that it stuck with me. I might have even been younger than nine, but I was very young. Um, you have to give back what you've taken Um, If you damage someone's reputation, what do you do? You publicly admit what you've done. You publicly admit that, hey, all of you think badly about this guy because I said something about him and you all told each other the thing that I said about him and I was wrong, right? That's what John Murray does. John Murray could have left everybody thinking badly of this other man and yet he says, no, I need to repair this. I need to fix this. If you're sorry for what you've done, you show that you're sorry so that real healing can happen. Who are you angry with? Or who's angry with you? Who have you been, who have you given the opportunity to be angry with you? Jesus would tell you it is time. You would say it's time to be reconciled. It's time to come to terms. It's time to take responsibility for how you've hurt someone else. And and it may be necessary for you to tell someone else that, that they've sinned against you. You should be careful how you do that you should be careful to tell someone that they have hurt you. But whatever happens, Jesus says, you need to come to terms. All of these things do something. They combine to give us Jesus's answer to anger and hatred. Notice not only not only that it is personally oriented. In other words, you're accountable for yourself. Right? Jesus isn't dealing with systemic issues. He's not dealing with big cultural things, uh, uh, dealing with the Roman Empire or soldiers or any of these other things. Jesus talks to each individual person. He says, you're accountable and you're responsible. Be accountable for yourself. Be responsible for yourself. And so the question here is, who are you angry with? Who do you need to be reconciled to? Whatever happened, it's time to come to terms. But I want you to notice this. Not only is it personally oriented, but it's also uniquely Christian. Right? What he gives us is not something that applies to the generic world out there. Right? These aren't principles that you can just take and apply in some secular instance. I've talked about this before. The fact that the Sermon on the Mount is Christian and it's for Christians. It's not just for everybody. We hope everybody bows the knee to Jesus. It comes to Jesus. But this is a passage that applies to those who are Christians. And so in Christ, there is a way to forgive. There's a motive to forgive. And there is a Savior who will forgive. It bears repeating. I never get tired of reminding you of this. Our unjust and excessive anger, our hatred, these things are from sin and they are sin. And every reminder of our sin does two things, doesn't it? On the one hand, it drives us to remember how desperate our own situation is. It drives us to Jesus. So when we see our own anger in our own hearts, we should be immediately driven to Christ. Uh, After all, we serve a hated Savior. Isaiah reminds us that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. See, when we hate others, when we're angry with others, when we choose not to be reconciled with others, when we know we're in the wrong, we are deploying the same tools and hard attitudes that placed our Savior on the cross. This reminder that Jesus was hated and despised does something else, though. It should drive us in the light of Christ. To be reconciled as Jesus tells us here. It should motivate us to act to be reconciled. Not just to talk about it. It should motivate us to keep short accounts. And not to be ready or willing to maintain anyone as our enemy. Shouldn't it? Why? Not for sentimental reasons. None of this is going to work on a t-shirt. but Because we serve a savior who could have been the angriest man who ever lived. And yet he chose to love. And he chose the path of reconciliation. And he set his eyes upon people like you and me. People he should have had a beef with. And he said, let's come to terms. And then he he made those terms happen by laying his own life down. And, And in Christ's case, what does he say? He says, trust in me. Give your sin to me. Give your anger to me. And I will give you all my righteousness. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Jesus has come to terms with you, Christian. How can you not come to terms with others? Let's pray. Oh God, we are sinners. And because of that, we mistreat each other. We sin against each other. And we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. And because of that, we're in constant need of repentance and forgiveness? Would you use the teaching of Jesus to press us toward being reconciled when we haven't loved our neighbor as ourself? Would you give us hearts that are willing to forgive and make us quick to confess when we wrong others? And in so doing, preserve the peace of the body of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.